Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Andrew Lipstein. Andrew, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, um, my name is Andrew Lipstein. I'm a novelist. My second novel, The Vegan, uh, comes out, probably came out July 11th. Yeah, so by the time you're listening to this, um, the book will be available wherever fine books are sold, and a link will be in the show notes to a place where you can purchase it. Um, so that's going to be the main topic of our discussion today. The Vegan, once again, is the title. How would you, what's, I mean, this is this cliche question, but what's like the elevator pitch? What's, what's the you know one or two line description of, of this book? Yeah, so the book um, follows a quant hedge fund CEO uh, as he's on the precipice of a few things, uh, including a dinner party where he and his wife are trying to impress their new neighbors and invite over a guest. Turns out to be a bit of a mouthful, and our narrator indulges in a prank that uh, backfires and sends him down a path he never expected. Okay, so your main character, Herschel Kane, is also the narrator for most or all of all of the novel. Um, how did you decide that this was going to be a first-person novel, or were there other forms that you were considering as as you were writing it? Yeah, I my first book, Last Resort, was in first person, and I thought it would be interesting to change that. And I actually wrote the first chapter both ways, first and third, really hoping that third would work out, but it just wasn't. It just wasn't what I wanted to do. And um, I think especially for a character like him, who is sort of uh, deeply flawed and is going to go through a lot of shit, it's always great to sort of see the world directly through their eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the change that Herschel experiences is um, sort of a... This book is not like a thriller, but there's twists and turns and things... You know, when I started, it went went to places that I had no expectation of where it was going to go. Um, so maybe this conversation will include some spoiler type things. And if people want to consume the novel, knowing very little, they, they can maybe pause now and go in and purchase it and read it and then come back later. Um, and I, I would give the book my, you know, seal of approval. I, I enjoyed reading it. So if you want to, uh, yeah, not really hear anything more about the way the plot proceeds, um, you have been warned. Okay, so how did Herschel, where did, where did Herschel come from and how did you decide what his job was going to be? Yeah, I uh, I actually, kind of the, for the for, first for me, I did a lot of uh, research for this book, which was basically reading a few books, but mostly interviewing people, guys, all guys, um, as it happens in that world. And when I say that world, I mean the world of, of quant hedge funds or algorithmic hedge funds. And I sort of had this idea of setting in that world. And then the idea of interviewing those people came to mind. And from then I was just like, I have to do this because I really just want to talk to them. And so I ended up speaking with, I think, about seven or eight analysts, I think three CEOs and a billionaire, each for about an hour or two, just about their life and about their uh, about the industry. And that was like to get the minutiae, to get the jargon and technicalities, but it was also to um inhabit them to see the world as they do to understand you know what their morality consists of not like are they a good or bad person but what are the moral questions in their life and how do they consider good and bad um and those conversations were incredibly influential obviously I, herschel is not based on 
anyone in particular. And it wasn't like he was like a easy composite of them, but they sort of, those conversations opened the door for me to uh, create him. And so why, what originally attracted you to this idea of a book about like a quant hedge fund guy? Yeah. I mean, the world of, I mean, when you hear that a book is about like a hedge fund guy, I think the first question that comes to mind is like, how bad is this guy going to end up being, you know, like (laughs) how much am I supposed to hate him? And I thought that was a great challenge to set a book that is ultimately about goodness, um, set it around this narrator who, you know, especially in our demographic in New York, but especially the book world um, is sort of feels wrong or feels like um, we sh- we almost shouldn't be rooting for him. I was really attracted to that idea. And as far as it being in a quant hedge fund, I mean, I when I started writing this, I wrote this starting in late 2020. Um, I, I just sensed that that was going to become a big issue. Um, machine learning trading, AI trading. And I thought it was something that was going to be deeply impactful in the future and um, and really want to, to learn more about it. I had already read a book or two, but really wanted to dive deeper. Yeah. And you, I mean, you're prescient um, in, you know, this book is coming out right as the artificial intelligence, I don't know, panic or craze or, or scare, uh, moral panic is, you know, just in the past couple of months, it's really peaked and the so the hedge fund well why don't you talk about what the the idea behind the hedge fund in the and 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 also mention what it's the company is called um and and what their concept is yeah so the the company is called atra arca and and their concept is basically atra arca means black box in latin um their concept and, and all algorithmic trading funds if they are purely algorithmic quant hedge funds, they will be a black box. And what that means is that they are building an algorithm and feeding that algorithm data. And what often goes overlooked is that actually the data tends to be more important than the algorithm. And then based on what the algorithm outputs, that uh, decides what the hedge fund will trade. Okay. And Herschel is one of the two partners of this firm, and he's not the like mathematical genius one of the pair how would well how, how would you describe his role more and also like why you know what why is the narrator not the mathematical genius guy yeah i mean when you when you look at a quant hedge fund you often do find that there's a ceo who maybe they have some quantitative background and herschel like me majored in math but you know couldn't approach the sort of level of skill that would enable him to be on the quantitative side you usually find that there's a business person who is driving it as a business. And then there's like somebody who is extremely smart, who could never be a business person because <laughs> if they weren't in, in at a quant hedge fund, they would probably be in a, in a physics department at a college. You know, the quant hedge funds are still, they're basically, if you walked into them, it would seem like you were walking into uh, a, a graduate program, hard, hard science department, because they, they even have like seminars. They even have like uh a lot of time allocated just for free thinking. Um, it really is like emulating an academia uh, landscape or higher thinking uh, context. Mm-hmm. So what attracted you to, to writing about artificial intelligence and how do you like, ha- and simply like what thematically in the novel, what role do you think artificial intelligence plays? Well, I think, I think the really interesting thing, and this is stated pretty early in the book is that, you know, the idea of, being a hedge fund or making money with money 
it can seem like a zero sum game. And in order to succeed, somebody else has to fail or lose. And one of the characters brings up that economics is called the dismal science for exactly this reason. Um, and that can feel, and in talking to these hedge fund guys that, that, and if you're in the finance industry, that isn't a moral problem for you, but especially when you're in a quant hedge fund, when you aren't even making those decisions, you're almost on a pursuit for higher knowledge. Um, and you know, the firm is called black box. You don't even have a hand in it. And I, I found that concept really interesting. And especially about how AI often absolves, absolves us of, of intent while sort of doing the dirty work for us. And I think you see that a lot, especially in this past year, with what AI is capable of and the moral questions it raises. So apart from the novel, how are you feeling about AI and the, you know, craze panic or whatever we're at in the discourse around it? You know, there's people... I guess a consortium of people said we need like a six month pause on all AI research because it's getting mm -hmm. too dangerous or something. But maybe those people had self-serving uh, reasons for, for wanting to do that. And then there's, uh, I mean, the the things that make an impression on a lay person like me is, uh, you know, ChatGPT or these art generating programs that come close to a um, an appearance of an actual intelligence Mm -hmm. creating something and then this this whole discourse around like oh we won't need you know screenwriters anymore because the the ai will spit out 10,000 plots and we'll we'll pick the best one and then we don't have to you know pay residuals to the computer program that wrote the script or, or something like this so like undercutting human creativity and make it easier for big companies to uh screw over creative types how are you feeling about all this yeah i feel like we're in like maybe say 1997 of the internet boom mm -hmm. um where like we, we can imagine some possibilities but we're probably focusing on the wrong things like in 97 it probably seemed uh, unfeasible that the internet could put a brick and mortar store out of business yeah it was like kind of like a weird thing to go on a chat room you know you're meeting weirdos it feels like a very <laughs> foreign space mm -hmm. but naturally with technology like this there's no way we can anticipate what's coming um, and I think it's very telling and interesting that a lot of our fears are focused around uh, the most human aspects of what it can do. So chat GBT, as you said, like artistic renderings, even writing, like, I don't think that is where we should be worried. And I don't think that's actually where AI will make an impact. I mean, it's called artificial intelligence, meaning that it emulates human intelligence. And that's sort of supposed to be the most interesting thing about it. But um, I think where AI gets super interesting, like like people are amazed that I think it was ChatGPT4 or something like scored very highly on the LSAS or something like that. Like, I, I think we should take that for granted that that a computer can beat us at chess, be the best lawyer out there, you know, do all of the things that can be taught. Because if they can be taught, a computer can do it. Where I think things get really interesting is thinking about what AI can do that we can't even imagine. And especially how that intersects with value. I think the reason why an AI making visual art is so disconcerting is because uh, they're taking something from us and they're taking a form of value, artistic expression. But I think a, a little bit down the road, what they're actually going to be taking from us is a much larger kind of value. And I'm talking specifically about money. I mean, there's already been flash crashes, but that was like more than 10 years ago mm -hmm. that started. Um there are already ways that people are using AI to make money, but what happens when you could make 
continual amounts of money because of AI? What does that mean about value? What does that mean about uh, what, what we take for granted about our financial system, which is that you get paid for what you bring to society? Uh, I think there are huge questions that we're not even going to have time to answer once they're upon us. That's interesting. I mean, I was young. I was a teenager in the like internet 1.0 era. And I think what's interesting about the way people are reacting to AI now is I think a, a lot of people who had some optimistic idea of what the internet would do or what social media would do or e-commerce, uh, a lot of those hopes have been dashed. And so you have to be sort of naive to be like, oh, this is going to be great. You know, this is going to do great things. Um, and a, a more cynical response of being like, it's going to be used in the worst way possible because a lot of other things that once seemed, you know, neutral or uh, fun or whatever <laughs> in, in technology have turned out to be uh, taken advantage of by nefarious people or, or, you know, bots or whatever, or scammers or whatever. So, you know, you have this possibility of a new form of technology that's like impossible to imagine, but we've been through 25 years of the internet not living up to utopian uh, promises or hopes or whatever. So, yeah. So I, I don't know if that's a question exactly, but no, I mean, I think well, what, what you were touching on was sort of like what is to be done and I think if the way the government has reacted to the internet, you know, is any, is any, uh, shines a light on what we're to expect. Like it's pretty grim. Like we've all seen the congressional hearings when like an 88 year old congressperson is like asking Mark Zuckerberg, how exactly an internet service provider like works, uh, or like how they make their money. Um, I, I, not to sound like a super cynic, but I don't imagine it's going to be the government that uh, enables us to uh, control the possible negative outcomes of AI. Right. I mean, yeah. Um, so let's talk about the dinner party, which is sort of the first uh, set piece of the book. Uh, why Why did you decide that this would be like that a dinner party would be the uh, turning point of, of your work? It, yeah, I mean, I think calling it a set piece is spot on because it feels like... Uh, it feels like a uh, structure that's like ready to be torn to shreds. The dinner party, the literary dinner party. I mean, like <laughs> what, per what percent of fiction in the past two decades has consisted of that? Uh, I, I approached the book. I really love this idea of like a, a huge tonal shift, not even a shift, but like a demolishing of the tone. And basically the second scene in the book, as you point out, is sort of a comedy of manners where you sort of feel like, uh, you, you know, you can anticipate the level of levity and sort of the... Um, gaffes and a little bit of the awkwardness. But what comes out of it is basically an unspeakable literal tragedy for um, one one of the, the characters there caused by inadvertently uh, Herschel Cain, the narrator. And I just I just love the idea of this like this like terrible thing coming out of this like, as you put it, set piece. And what about the, you know, the cultural place of the, the dinner party um, and how are you thinking about that? And also, I mean, how did you um, think about the novel as you were started it during, you know, mid pandemic? Uh, I can't remember if there's any references to the pandemic during the novel, but sort of a dinner party is, is something that a lot of people didn't have for some length of time because of fears of the virus. Um, yeah. So no, like, I, I, two questions. Does, does this novel exist uh, pre pandemic in a world where there 
was no pandemic. And also, what do you think about the, the role of the dinner party in, in the culture at large? Well, I learned my lesson in my first book. I should say I learned my lesson, but now I'm making the same mistake with my third of time stamping parts of the book. My first book took place between 2019 and 2021, and I sold it uh, just before the pandemic. So I and had to change a bunch of shit. So I, I decided <laughs> I decided to set this one in in a in a relatively ambiguous uh, time, which is we'll call it uh, in the short future. And then as far as like, yeah, so, so there is no pandemic in the book. I mean, I wrote this. I started it at the end of 2020 and finished at the beginning of 2021. I didn't I, I didn't want to approach the pandemic, though. I will say that like writing about our dinner party and office life did feel like living vicariously at those mm-hmm. times. Uh, but, you know, I, I think you were alluding to it being set in Brooklyn and Cobble Hill, where I currently live. And um, we moved here and right before I started the book. And I was just like, you know, not to overstate the differences between Brooklyn neighborhoods. I mean, there could be no better um, example of the narcissism of small differences than talking about like the differences between Park Slope and Cobble Hill. <laughs> but um, I... I sensed a certain tension among certain people. I mean, Cobble Hill is a little more well-to-do. It's a little more like Warby Parker, Eileen Fisher E. And there's a lot of like boutique clothing stores that I like won't even look at because I'm afraid of going in there and buying something. Um, but I just sense the sort of like what someone might call uptightness or a certain social vigilance that I really wanted to explore. And and you do come I think when you think of wealthy people who live in New York, especially if you're not from New York, you're thinking of Manhattan, uh, maybe Brooklyn Heights, but probably just Manhattan. Whereas like there's a certain class of people who have a lot of money, but also maybe have certain tastes or proclivities that um, place them in a neighborhood like Cobble Hill. And I really wanted to like zoom into that. And one day I was on a walk and I looked into an apartment and saw a guy wearing a sweater with a button down underneath and he looked like a certain type. And I just like scoped out that apartment and set the book in it. <laughs> okay. And by scope, by scoped out, I don't mean I broke and entered. I mean, I just went on a few walks around it. Okay. Interesting. Um, and the, the, the dinner party is to try to cement a friendship with the next door neighbors who are kind of like uh, artsier more prominent versions of the narrator and his wife um and they want to become friends and then as you mentioned there's a an outsider who comes into the party okay well here we're getting to maybe some of the spoiler territory why don't you say as much as you want about what happens and how it takes us into sort of like the main part of the novel yeah and as i said i i think it's fine for any reader to know this i actually hope no plot point would make it so reading the book didn't serve its purpose anyway, but mm-hmm. Herschel, Herschel and his wife invite their neighbors over who seem, as you said, prominent. I mean, their their last name is, is Guggenheim, for fuck's sake. <laughs> and uh, and they're sort of eager to impress them. And of course, like this already is such a contrived setup. Like you're trying to organically become friends with your neighbors. And so you like plant a dinner party and like think about where the chairs will be and like what music will be playing. But um, Herschel's wife, Franny's old, old roommate, Birdie is a prominent British playwright. And so she's in town and they think it's just the perfect uh, opportunity, the perfect addition to the dinner. And Birdie sort of turns out to be overbearing, a bit annoying, getting in the way, sort of saying the exact wrong things. And Herschel has this idea. She keeps on asking for more and more drinks. And he sees that the alcohol is just sort of enabling her and her 
way of being in the world. And so he serves her a drink uh, with a bit of z in it, basically to accelerate her jet lag and send her packing a bit early. Um, and it works. She leaves so, the party. So z being the uh, form of NyQuil that does not have like the cold medicine right right it. i guess and, and i should i shouldn't yeah i shouldn't assume your listeners are as insomniacs <laughs> as i am and like know the ins and outs so of it's all like a non-prescription form of a, like a sleep aid yeah i that's think, sold over the counter i think the good people at nyquil realized that like the fda was getting on their case because everyone was misusing their drug which is meant for cold so they decided to just uh remove the cold stuff and sell it as it's basically it's for a primary purpose primary purpose as a sleep aid right um but yeah, not not medical advice. But uh, yeah, he serves he serves her a bit of that, and it works. She goes home, and then basically they have the night that they wish they had. And it isn't until the next day that Herschel realizes that um, the drink he served has caused uh, Birdie to have an accident. Right, and then she ends up in the hospital, and then um, Herschel has this well, you know, psychological change crisis of conscience. Or moral awakening, um, possible ways to uh, describe it, and he suddenly becomes very attuned to animals and nature, and then becomes the the vegan of um, of the title, the, t- the titular vegan. Yeah, right. How did this? I mean, was this what <laughs> what part of drafting the novel did this idea of like this psychological turn? or awakening or psychosis or something enter in was this like what you wanted to go yeah, towards think, all along i think this was the core of what made me personally interested in writing it and like uh not to sound pretentious but like need, need to write it to work through some things myself i you know i mean and i i'm a vegetarian i became a vegetarian four years ago i mean what could be less interesting than somebody becoming a vegetarian like i feel like <laughs> if i if i heard that was the impetus for, for a novel, I would turn away. It's like, I wrote a book because I'm left-handed. You know, it's like uh, 10% of the population already does this thing. Uh-huh. But um, I became a vegetarian and it was incredibly surprising to me. Like uh, five minutes before I became a vegetarian, I would have guessed I would have become one. I was basically just eating dumplings with my to-be wife and um, decided I never wanted to eat meat again. And uh, it was just so surprising to me and, and I had no way of explaining it but I did wonder and sense where it came from and why I did it and how and and why how how a conviction can feel so untethered from language to the point where you can't even talk to yourself about about why why you decided to do this thing. Um and basically seeking out other parts of my life where that decision might have come from, I think I projected directly onto the book where Herschel basically seeks virtue in another part of his life that has nothing to do with where he might have a moral deficit. Okay. That's, that's interesting. And so, I mean, he takes this, he, this happens extremely quickly for him and it's more than the average sort of decision that someone might have to become vegetarian or vegan. Um, and it's also deeply related to him to this, a sort of like connection with animals and nature that is newfound uh, including like a, a neighbor's dog and animals at the um, the, the zoo in Prospect Park. Um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about? Yeah, so about that. So the morning after he finds out uh, what happened to Birdie at his hands, he is uh, getting ready to be picked up by his driver 
and he makes eye contact with a dog across the street that had like previously basically been a nuisance Herschel like I step in shit all the time and um he sort of recognizes in this dog recognition of his own guilt which he up to this point you know it's only been a day or so has no idea what to do with he doesn't even really know the shape of his own guilt um but this dog seems to like not just share the guilt with him but take some of the burden from him and this is sort of the seed of what is to come where he uh wants needs him to have the ability to commune with animals so much to make sense of what he did or to not make sense of it that he basically follows that road until the end where he he kind of erases the line between humanity and animals and all that comes with it including sort of uh language and logic and rationale right um i mean do you th <laughs> do you think anyone will read this and reconsider their own um relationship to animals especially consuming animals yeah I, and i sort of self-consciously attack that in the book where i'm like um he uh his neighbor has made like a film and apparently like a few people in the book like stopped eating meat for a week because of that film and i sort of directly attack this idea of like uh art being political and like wanting to change our habits mm -hmm. um i mean i i think eating meat is something that if you do think hard enough about uh you might want to stop um and through herschel's sort of mania uh i think the reader will get cases for not eating meat if somebody told me they stopped eating meat because of this book i would be extremely happy but to answer your question um <laughs> I, I i would be i would be also shocked so, so also part of his transformation is a almost vis visceral or or unintentional uh, disgust with uh, c with consuming animals and animal products like milk. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah. it's like it seems involuntary in right. some aspects. Not like this is a um, you know deeply considered sort of thing. It's like he uh, gags if he try if he's <laughs> drinking right. a, a latte, and you know that is. So that's not like thinking of reflecting on mm -hmm. the the ethics of of consuming animals. Um, that's sort of like yeah, visceral disgust response that um, I don't know is is it's not natural. I think um, for for most people, and it comes on extremely suddenly and out of this moral crisis. So wh why did you why did you have the character that the plot yeah. of school in that way where it's there's this involuntary aspect to it. I mean, I'm I'm so glad you brought that up. I I think there's this thought that like morality and moral decisions and being a good person comes out of extremely conscious decisions that are born from rationality and that is completely separate from like our bodily immediate reactions to things. But um, I think in actuality, and this is partly informed by a book I read, uh, I think shortly before I started writing called disgust or maybe it's called the anatomy of disgust by william miller i think william ian miller um and what he points out and i think is very true is that we feel our morality and we often make moral decisions based on um repulsion or attraction to things i mean that's definitely true with like attraction to people even love um where we sense someone's a good person and we don't think it we feel it um, and I really want to attack this idea that if you have a certain moral paradigm in mind, then you're like, uh, pre it's premeditated, 
or you're preempting in any way, you're deciding. Because I think in actuality, morality is, is bodily, it's physical, and it's visceral. And exactly as you said, like Herschel is disgusted by meat. He doesn't have to think about it. Um, he, he just feels it. Mm -hmm. One uh, book that this reminded me of was Bonfire of the Vanities. Um, were you thinking about that, Bonfire of the Vanities, when you, when you wrote it? Which also, if people haven't read it, is Tom Wolfe's book from like 1987 that was uh, made into a very bad famous flop movie. But uh, the main incident is a Wall Street, like a you know, Wall Street asshole guy um, accidentally causes the death of a child and the plot of schools from there. Um, I, I actually, I, I love The Bonfire of the Vanities and I actually am intimately linked with it because my father read it while he was holding me as a baby. So it was wow, probably okay. the, the first the first work of art that I came into close contact with. Um, I uh, I actually I had I never thought of the connection, and um, I mean I did enjoy in Bonfire of the Vanities sort of like the the desperation of some of the characters, especially like the desperation to be good and to cover over past faults. But um, I didn't I didn't really consider that. Oh, that's interesting. I mean the. The character, the main character, Buff of the Vanities, I don't re recall him having a moral crisis after he is involved in this accident. It's more like he's trying to figure out how to get out of getting in trouble or getting arrested for it. And he's, mm -hmm. he's, he's there with his mistress in the cars when he um, is when he hits, hits the kid. So, you know, there's multiple reasons why he, he doesn't want to be found out for it. Um, but, you know, a financier in New York City brought low by a, you know, accidental um, injury to someone else with some, with social satire built into it. Um, that's, that's what yeah, I was thinking. It does uh, ring a bell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So one uh, detail that I was curious about, and if this gets more, I mean, maybe we can skip this if this is spoiler territory is you reveal that Herschel during his childhood was, sort of sexually abused in a unusual way mm -hmm. um, by his babysitter. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about why you, the, what you think the significance of that is or why you included that as part of his character history? Yeah, I, I mean, this isn't a spoiler and I think it's very significantly not a spoiler. So, you know, that detail comes about in Herschel talking to his therapist and he talks about his relationship with that sexual abuse. Basically, his babysitter masturbated in front of him um, multiple times when he was, I think, 11. And um, the through therapy, he sort of learns how to integrate or not integrate that fact into his life. I mean, it is obviously, by definition, trauma. Um, but as he says in the book, like he has learned how to chop up the emotional ingredients of his life and use them as he wishes. And I think his, what he would call an ability, what others would call an extreme deficit, his ability to unconnect that fact from his life and sort of rearrange causality um, is integral to the bigger journey he's on throughout the book. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and his, if I recall, his therapist is often trying to like bring this past childhood trauma back in mm -hmm. and he's like okay well, you know like we're i'm done with you know like we figured we talked about this enough like let's talk about current things and mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, well, when I was reading, I was thinking, well, this, you know, the, the therapist is overly focused on uh, a childhood trauma as sometimes, you know, it's maybe a Freudian therapist would be overly focused on childhood and this end. As I was reading, I was thinking, well, okay, I'm with Herschel on this one. Like, let's talk about what you know, what happened this past week. Um, mm-hmm. But but how do you see that you know that something that something that happened in childhood? Yeah, and and when he does bring up what happened in the past week, due to the uh, slipperiness of language, like it doesn't come across, and she basically thinks it's just like the specter of being a parrot that is like uh, making him feel weird. But to go to your question, yeah, I mean, I mean, if there's any profession that that is incompatible with Herschel's sort of uh, ability or deficit, his his ability to like uh, use what happened to him to his own advantage, it's therapy, which needs to draw um, a thread between your past and your present. And therapy, uh, I don't think it's often seen as a narrative form, but I, I, I strongly believe it is. I think that without narrative uh, therapy, and especially Freudian analysts, like, uh, you know, wouldn't have a job. We need to believe that there's payoff for things, that things have consequences, that that maybe there's not karma, but, um, you know, what goes up must come down. But I don't, I mean, I think therapy, I wish I was going to therapy now, I have in the past and, and loved it. Um, I, I think it can sometimes be too caught up in narrative and especially be un- uneffectual to somebody who is like um, bent on disowning or dis- disavowing something that happened to them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Herschel goes on, you know, once he becomes duly obsessed with animals and nature, he adopts or purchases uh, some pets, and they are a type of small lizard. Is it just pronounced a knoll? Yeah, that you got it. Um, a type of small lizard that's kept as a pet, and he adopts two of them. Uh, and they, and the uh, the cover of the book is um, one of these lizards seemingly eating another one of these lizards in a... Um, martini glass or some other type of glass so can you talk about the lizards <laughs> yeah where did the, where did those where did these lizards come from you know i didn't even i mean the lizards came from my past and i didn't even like think about this until until it became like so obvious but i uh i had two anoles when i was a kid and and the male basically killed the female by taking the food from its mouth the crickets that we fed them mm. And, um, you know, I was, I was pretty young and at that point where the, the death of a pet is very meaningful and maybe even somewhat traumatic. But and thinking about it now and why I put it in the book and put it in the book in the way I did, you know, like I obviously I was just an innocent kid. But if you really think about it, like I was to blame for that. Um, like just when we own pets, we put them in like such a contrived atmosphere usually and I bought these two anoles who would never exist together in a, in a small cage uh, outside of their normal environs if it weren't for me. And it was because of that fact that one of them died at the hands of the other. And this sort of like second order guilt, second order causation, I think is is really interesting, especially as we consider like the moral questions of today and how many have how many of those have to do with like being guilty but without intent, like inequality the environment, the clothes we wear, all of these things we do that contribute, but we're never really at fault. And I thought that was um, something I really wanted to unpack. Okay, well, that's so you have direct experience with with adults. Um, that's interesting. And that there were two, and there's two in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so you know i don't want to quote give away like what happens in the end we've already talked a lot about the plot but i encourage people to to read the book if they're interested so it's you know it's a novel of ideas a social satire um and a, a book that had surprising twists and turns that i did not see coming um is there anything else you want to discuss before we before we wrap things up no i you hit on a lot of uh i mean i, I love these conversations because i don't it makes me think about the book in a way I actually haven't before. And I didn't realize how much of myself I put into it until I, until I'm having these conversations and actually like thinking about it, um, not to get too woo woo, but I feel like there is a lot of unconscious things from my life in the book that I was maybe using in lieu of a therapist. Uh, so maybe <laughs> I shouldn't have, maybe I shouldn't have put down therapists so much, but, um, but yeah, go out and buy it, buy 10 copies if you want 20, there's no limit. <laughs> Uh, unless your books are as limited, but if you go on Amazon, I'm sure you could buy as many as you need. Yeah, it's uh, give them to friends and family members. Um, okay, so the vegan is the title. Uh, a link will be in the notes. Do you want to direct people somewhere if they want to follow your writing or your thoughts or anything like that? Yeah, now's a good time to look up what my handles are. Um, on Twitter, I'm AI Lipstein and on instagram i'm also ai lipstein oh is i assume i is your it's my it's my middle name there's another andrew lipstein who's a bit older and got and got everywhere before i did okay but Um, so ai is i know not only (laughs) it's creepy getting goosebumps over here ai (laughs) lipstein yeah so it's it's a part of you um and maybe you know a part of society that we are learning more and more about okay so you yeah so fault falls (laughs) people can follow you there uh, people can follow this show, uh, which has a, a dedicated Twitter feed uh, just just for the show, which is at uh, culturally debt, D-E-T, just if they want to follow updates about this show. And, and Twitter still exists as of the recording of this uh, this episode, but who knows what's going to happen. And they could also, um, even better than going to the failing social media site would be just uh, subscribing to this show and rating, reviewing, or even telling your friends. Um, okay, so so thank you, Andrew, for coming on. Uh, the Vegan is the title of the novel once again, and uh, good luck with it. I, I enjoyed it a lot, and I hope a lot of people read it. Thanks so much, Arya. Okay, bye. <laughs>